Welcome to Seeking Truth with Sharon Doran. Sharon has a passion for Scripture that will motivate and challenge you to immerse yourself in God's Word and apply His message to your everyday life. Visit SeekingTruth.net to learn more about bringing Seeking Truth to your parish or to become an online learner. Today it's part two of the Gospel of John, chapter 14. And now, Seeking Truth with Sharon Doran. The groom wants to take you unto himself, so that where I am, there you may also be. In the Father's house, in the Father's insula, this is what Jesus has prepared for each and every one of those who love him, who follow his commands, who are blemish-free and pure. I go prepare a place for you, so I will come again and receive you. He's coming back to get you. He didn't leave us here orphaned. No one knows the day or hour this is going to happen. He's coming back to get us. No one knows, not the angels, not Jesus Christ, only the Father knows. Only the Father knows the day and hour. Now, these words of Jesus are deeply rooted in Jewish wedding customs. So marriage and family to the Jews, that was an extremely sacred thing, marriage and family. The rabbi said, cursed is the man who at 20 years is not yet married. Marriage was usually very early, and most men married between 16 and 20. Girls married even earlier. A Jewish girl was considered ready for marriage at 12 and a half years old plus one day. So if you're 12 and a half plus one day, it's time, you get married. Most girls married between 13 and 14 years of age. So you can think of Mary, Virgin Mary, young, just coming into their womanhood. And the Hebrew male doesn't just go out and pick a bride. It's a family decision. This is a very, very, very important decision. And a family council was held within the entire insula, the house of the father. Taking the bride into their insula was very important. It meant the whole family would be living with her for how long? Forever. <laughs> the input of the parents was much more important than the feelings of the young man. There was very much to consider here. They want to look at her character. What attributes will she bring to our family insula? What are her gifts? What are her talents? What are her skills? She needed to be pure and good and wholesome and chaste. And they're very concerned about her character, her virtue. What is her reputation, her moral purity, her community standing, her kindness, her attitude? Wealth and beauty are not nearly as important as a virtuous woman. Now, so the family has had their meeting. They've decided who they're going to ask. And they go to the girl's house unannounced. Three of them will go. But here's the woman, you know, they're just out grinding grain. And a group of men is sent off to tell the young lady that she's been chosen. The group that goes is three people. A young man, who's the groom, his father, and then a trusted friend who's like a bridegroom. He's called a shushpin in the Jewish language. The friend of the bridegroom, the shushpin, functioned very much like our best man. He's in charge of communication between the young man and his future bride during the betrothal period. This is a very important role. And at the Jewish wedding, the best man would offer gifts. He would personally wait on and serve the bride and groom, and he would attend to them in the bridal chamber. Now, he's responsible for guaranteeing the bride's virgin chastity. And he had to check the sheets of the marriage bed. And what is he checking them for? He's checking them for blood. Because if she's pure, this will be a blood covenant between God, the husband, and the wife. And it's beautiful. And that's what covenant was in the Old Testament. It was always a blood covenant, sealed by blood. 
between God, the husband, and the wife. The first order of business was to announce the desire to her family, to the girl's family, that they want her hand in marriage to their son. Now, usually in the Middle East, when you go to someone's home, they offer you tons of food. No, no, not, not this. If it's going to be a marriage thing, there's going to be a negotiation. No food yet. Okay, so take the food away. This is serious business. We got to decide on a dowry. There's negotiations conducted. Now, any of you who have been to the Middle East know that negotiations are very important, and they're very good at negotiating. I don't know if you've ever bought a rug or a scarf or, you know, if you start to walk away and say, too expensive, wait, 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 you know, for you today, you know, it's very, it's just very good at this. So the friend, the best man, the shushpin was involved in the negotiations. He's the middleman. He's going to work it out because passions get kind of high. This is their only chance to get a dowry. This is their only chance to get her for their son. And so both parties are kind of passions are kind of high. So the neutral person is the shushpin. And he's responsible to negotiate a fair price. They don't want to lose the bride, but they want to get her, but they don't, you know. So I know it seems like a commodity. It's not really, but they have to compensate her family for what they're going to lose when she leaves their family. So the young couple will always live in the father's house. So if you have a son, the girls will always be coming to your house to live. So I would be, I would be lucky, you know, it's not like that. I would have all the girls coming to my house now, but the dowry is a substantial sum of money, depending on the means of the family. Paul will use some bridegroom speak when he tells the Corinthians that they were bought with a price. He's talking about a dowry. And then the dowry is agreed upon and both parties agree. Okay. It's a done deal. Then there's a ceremony and it's called the cup of acceptance. And the father of the groom would have brought a skin of red wine with him. He would have poured it and gave it to his son. The son takes it to the girl and offers it to her. He hands it to her. And this is what he says. Listen closely. He says to her, this is the cup of the covenant in my blood. Hmm. Have you ever heard that before? This is the cup of the covenant in my blood. What he's really saying to her is, I love you. I want to be in a new covenant with you, with God. I pledge to provide for you, to defend you with my own very blood if I have to. I will lay down my life for you. I will die for you if necessary. Will you be my one flesh bride? Now, at that moment, the girl has a decision to make. If she refuses the cup of acceptance, it's like saying, deal's off, no thanks. I don't want to become your wife, no. (laughs) But if she reaches out and drinks the cup, if she drinks the cup of acceptance, she is saying, I accept this new covenant with you and with God. I accept your proposal. My life will be for you. I will be your wife. So now if that happens and she drinks from the cup of acceptance, they're officially betrothed. It's a legally binding promise. It's a contract of impending marriage. It's a contract that will lead to a covenant. The dowry has exchanged hands. They are officially betrothed. And this period takes some time. And we see this in Matthew 1 at the birth of Jesus Christ when his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph. Before they came together in the marriage covenant, she was found to be a child by the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to send her away quietly. They were in the betrothal stage. The couple now, after this cup of acceptance, they're betrothed. It's a binding legal contract. But there's going to be some time before the actual wedding and the actual coming together. 
And at the wedding, when the wedding's consummated, it will be a new covenant forever. And on their wedding night is when it becomes the new covenant with God. It's sealed in blood. The new covenant between God, man, woman, always blood, and then always a meal shared. So before leaving, the young man would announce to his new bride-to-be, I'm going away to prepare a place for you. And I'll return when it's ready. I'll come back to get you. Does that sound familiar? So he goes home and he has to build a room on his father's house. And he can't skimp on the work. And he has to save and he has to buy the materials and he has to build this just right and he needs his father's approval. And it's totally up to the father before he can get the okay to go back and get his bride. You get it? (laughs) He has to do the work perfectly. Now only the father knows the day or hour that he's going to let his son go back and return and get the bride. So once a guy gets engaged and once a girl gets engaged, I mean, they're, they're longing for each other, right? So if others said to the groom, when's your wedding day? He would have to reply, only my father knows. When are you getting married? I don't know. It's up to dad, you know? <laughs> so meanwhile, the bride's making herself ready so that she could be a pure, blemish-free, beautiful bride for her bridegroom. And you can imagine how excited this 12 or 13-year-old girl is. And during this time, she puts a veil on her head, and that means I'm taken, I'm spoken for, I'm one of the lucky ones. And she veils her head to show that she's been bought with a price. A dowry was paid for her. Now one day, the Jewish father will say to his son, Well done, my son. It's time. Go and get your bride. And what a happy day that must have been. And so the groom takes a whole clan of his friends, and they always did this dark, dark, dark of the night. Can you imagine all these young guys with torches? And they form a wedding party, and they're going to go get the bride in the pitch black dark of the night. And they're going through the streets with their flaming torches. And you can imagine how rowdy and excited they are. And the groom is wearing something spectacular, a special wedding garment, and he always had a wedding crown to identify that's the groom. He has a crown on his head. The bride was never told exactly when the wedding party's coming, so she had to be ready at a moment's notice. She always always had to be ready. And during those months, while he's building the insula, she's busy learning domestic skills, accumulating supplies. The other female friends are telling her what to expect, what it's going to be like, what it's going to be like on your wedding night and your husband and when you have children and and how you're going to make a home. And and they're bathing her and dressing her and perfuming her body, making her blemish-free and beautiful for when he comes. And she has to be ready at a moment's notice. And other virgins are waiting with her, and they're talking and laughing and socializing, and it seems like a big slumber party. 12- and 13-year-old girls. I wonder if tonight's the night. I wonder if tonight's the night you're going to get I wonder if this will be the night he comes. What do you think? This might be it. And sometimes they got really sleepy, waiting up for the bridegroom. (laughs) And Jesus bases his parable of the ten virgins on this time of waiting for the bridegroom to come. That's what that story is all about. What if my bridegroom comes tonight? Wake up, wake up. He might come tonight. This could be the night. And then, when it was the night, they heard this great big shofar. Loud, loud sounding shofar blowing in the black middle of the night. And the girls look and they see torches and they're coming and they're coming down the street and this is it and he's coming and he's coming and this is the night the bridegroom's coming. (laughs) The notes of the ram's horn announced to the bride and to her party that the groom was coming. And the virgins began to trim and fill their lamps with oil. So they could carry him in the procession, in the bridal procession. And the guys would get there and they'd hoist the bride up onto a chair and they'd carry her back in procession to the father's insula so they could have the marriage covenant. 
and the consummation of the new covenant with blood in the room that he had prepared for her in his father's house. And the bride and the groom went into the new room and they consummated their physical marriage, their physical union, their communion between one another and God. And the friend, the shushpin, one of his jobs, and this, <laughs> this is true, he had to stand by the door and listen. He had to listen for the groom's announcement of the completion. So you can imagine, he's standing there waiting, and he's waiting, and he has to guarantee the validity of the new covenant by retrieving those marriage sheets to show that the bride was pure, and that she was blemish-free, and that it's sealed in blood, and it's a forever covenant with God. And it's a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful thing, and we don't get it in America. But it's so beautiful because it raises the dignity of the bride so high. She's respected and revered so high before marriage. She's not used. She's protected. She's pure. She's holy. She's beautiful. It's such a gift for two reasons. It speaks of her purity before marriage. She's blemish-free, and it shows a blood covenant, the most solemn, binding covenant with God and his people. Beautiful. And the Sheshbin, after he's heard, he announces to the guests that the consummation is complete. And they begin a seven-day wedding feast. Open the wine. The heart is glad. The covenant is complete. And when the couple surface from the room, from the bridal chamber, in the father's house, there's so much joy and wine to gladden the heart and to celebrate what God has joined. And a covenant meal is shared by all. It's a new creation. That's why it lasts seven days. And Jesus in John 2, the Cana story, it's a new creation. It's a new covenant, and the wine is flowing. Maybe you'll understand Psalm 19 a little better. In the heavens, he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom from his wedding canopy. Isaiah 62, for a young man marries a young woman, so shall your builder marry you. And as a bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. That's bridegroom talk. And the greatest blessing of this marriage, of this covenant, not a contract anymore, a covenant of this consummation, the greatest blessing would be that if in 280 days God blessed them with new life, that would be the greatest blessing. They're not going to wait 10 years to have kids until they get the second home and a, a boat and go water skiing and go to Banff and... Our son got married in Denver two years ago, and I was, uh, we were just pulling up to the hotel, and there was Mike and Lindsay, and I said, you guys, hi, we're here from Omaha, let's go get lunch or something, they're like, we can't, mom, we have an appointment, and I was like, oh, here we go, okay, glad we came, you know, see ya, and he goes, mom, we're going to confession, we have an appointment with the priest. We want to stand pure before the Lord on our wedding day so we can be more grace-filled in the sacrament of holy matrimony. And I was like, go, 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 go. Don't let us hold you back. <laughs> 290 days later, <laughs> William, Michael, Doran. Now this year, a new little buddy will join him. This is John Francis Doran, 14 months later. Praise God. Praise God. Paul, he got married this summer, and he was far away from the church. He said, Mom, in college, I wouldn't even have self-identified as Catholic. But his bride is Lutheran. She came into the church. She asked me to be her sponsor. She made a 26-year confession. I was like, this is so awesome. While she was making her confession, Paul's at his bachelor party. 
He wasn't there. And I thought, oh gosh, I wonder if Paul's going to go to confession before his wedding. Because so much grace. And, and oh gosh, I said, Michael, I called Michael. I said, Michael, do you think Paul's going to go to confession before his wedding? He said, I don't know, mom. It's his business. And I said, well, maybe you should, like, you could just tell him, like, how you did it. And, you know, it's just, a, and, and I said, gosh, I really hope he goes to confession. And the weeks were going on. And I said to Steve, do you think Paul went to confession? He said, I don't know, babe, you know. Uh, I'm like, oh! So I just started praying the rosary. And I just started praying the rosary and praying the rosary and praying the rosary and praying the rosary. And I was trying to trust God. But I wanted him to go so bad. And we're driving to Denver and the phone rings and it's Paul. And we're talking and we're going to hang up and we're on our way for the wedding. And I didn't ask, you know. And, and then he starts, he, he, he starts yawning. And I said, what? And he goes, oh gosh, we were up so early this morning. I go, why? What'd you do? And he goes, oh, we went down the cathedral, went to confession at 7 a.m. this morning. And I was like, ah! I just was bawling in the car and all the other boys saw me and I just praise God so they could be filled with grace. 370 days later, there's baby Paul and Maddie. They're, they're pregnant. They're due 375 days from their wedding day. So I'm not saying this like, okay, Steve and I did not go to confession before our wedding day. We didn't even know we were supposed to, you know? <laughs> And it took us four years to conceive Michael, but it was good trying and all that. But, but, <laughs> but he's come to give us life and he wants us to have life abundantly and he wants to bless us and he wants to bless this union with life because he is life. So after the consummation, after the covenant's been sealed with God, then the wedding feast begins, and a feast it is. Jesus said, the wedding guests cannot mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them, can they? The days are going to come when the bridegroom's taken away from them, and then they can fast. So the wedding is a huge celebration. The entire village would have been invited. Not to attend, to snub the invitation, would be a grave insult to the family. The whole entire town shuts down for a wedding. Now, the marriage allegory. You have each been invited to a wedding. The entire village would be very upset if you don't show up. But not only that, you are the bride. And Jesus, the bridegroom, has granted his request to marry you. He's not skimped on doing the work of the Father. He's done it perfectly in perfect obedience every step of the way. And the work wasn't easy, and he's prepared a place for you. He's made a room on the father's house. His father and his Jewish mother were in full agreement that you should be the one betrothed to him. They called you into being. And he has come and proposed to you, and a dowry has been agreed on, a price has been settled on, and it was a very, 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 very high price. And you drank the red wine from the cup of acceptance, the new covenant of his blood. This is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. He gave you the cup. You drank from it. You said, amen, so be it. Yes, yes, yes. I believe. And the groom wore a special crown. And the marriage bed that he would like for us to join him on is the cross. It was on the cross where he consummated this spiritual marriage with his bride, the church. It was there that he poured out the greatest love and mercy ever known to the human race. And it's on the cross where he asks us to join him. And we say, I don't want to. We say, no thanks. I really don't like the cross. I really don't want to climb up there with you. 
I really run from the cross. I really hide. I'm like the apostles. I, 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 maybe another time, another proposal later down the road when I'm, I'm deeper in my faith. I, I really don't want to get on the cross right now. Because the cross is painful, and the cross is scary. And the cross comes in all different shapes and sizes, and you all have crosses in your life right now, and no two look alike. But he's asked you to climb up there with him right now. And sometimes we need others in the insula, in the Father's house, to help us carry our crosses because they are really heavy. I've had cancer four times, four different crosses. But then two years ago, Steve got cancer in his small intestine. And I didn't want that cross. I really didn't. I didn't want to go to the cross again. And I didn't want Steve to go to the cross. And that's wrong. That's wrong because we got to go to the cross because it's on the other side of the cross. That's the resurrection and the power and the glory. And if I would have denied him that, I would have denied him so much life because he learned so much carrying that cross and he's changed so much. He's carrying that cross. And I didn't want to do it again. But many helped us carry that load, and many came alongside us. He bought us with a price, and we're not home yet. And this is not the place we belong. We belong in union with the Trinity. That's what our heart longs for. This is a flash in the pan, this life. This is so fast. The next life is forever. He wants us to join him in his cross. That's the way back home. That's the way to get to the Father. We all have to go through it. He did his job perfectly. He's gone back to the Father. He's prepared a place for you and me, for Steve one day. We can't avoid it, but Steve can't be my first love. Jesus has to be my first love. He has to be my first bridegroom. He has to be. And that's why I... Do this. That's why I open the word with you guys. We've got to know his love letter for us. This is what the Holy Spirit has revealed to us. He's proposed to you. He's asked you to drink from the cup of acceptance. You are in the new covenant of his blood. You are betrothed. It's binding forever. He loves you. He's paid the price. Remember after we're betrothed, some of the young women would wear a veil. There are still women brave enough to wear veils. I'm not one of them. But they know who their bridegroom is. They're spoken for. The shushbin. Who's the shushbin of Jesus, the bridegroom? His shushbin was John, who announced the way. But who's the best man for us now? Because John's gone. Someone who's not gone. John testified, I saw the spirit descending from heaven like a dove. It remained on him. I myself didn't know him, but the one who sent me to baptize with water... He said, he on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain on is the one. It's the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I myself have seen and I have testified that this is the Son of God. The Spirit descended upon Jesus and remained on Jesus, and Jesus would baptize with the Holy Spirit. That's why his baptism is different than John's. John's is repentance only. Jesus baptizes into the Trinity. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. I'll ask the Father. He'll give you another advocate to be with you forever. This is the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him or knows him. You know him because he abides with you, and he will be in you. I will not leave you orphaned. I am coming to you. In a little while, the world will no longer see me, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. And on that day, you will know that I am in the Father. You are in me, and I am in you. The new shushpin. Remember, at the time of betrothal, three people went. 
the bridegroom, the groom's father, and the judgment. That's the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. All three persons, the divine number. The Sheshbin is the one in charge of communication between the couple to wed. It's the paraclete. The paraclete in Greek, one who consoles, comforts, uplifts, encourages, refreshes, intercedes, who is an advocate. He rekindles our spirit in times of distress. At the Jewish wedding, the best man would offer gifts while the Holy Spirit has gifts to offer. Wisdom, counsel, piety, fear of God, knowledge, fortitude, and understanding. He wants you to have them all in abundance. The Shashbin would personally wait and serve the bride and groom attending to them in the bridal chamber while the Holy Spirit personally serves you. He indwells in you. He is with you at all times. And the Shashbin was responsible for guaranteeing the bride's purity. The Holy Spirit of Jesus Christ is a consuming fire. He convicts us and he burns away our fleshly sin and wants us to live by him, the Spirit. And the Shushman would guarantee the validity of the new covenant by retrieving the marriage bed sheets and guaranteeing the bride's purity. The Holy Spirit wants to guarantee our purity in this new covenant. Paul says he has prepared us for this very thing. God has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. The Holy Spirit has marked us with the seal of the Lord for the day of redemption. Baptism, indeed, is a seal of eternal life. And when the archbishop confirmed you, he anointed your forehead with the chrism oil of the Holy Spirit, and he said, be sealed with the gift of the Holy Spirit. And this Holy Spirit wants to help us stay pure until Jesus comes back for his blemish-free bride. He wants to sanctify us, purify us, make us holy, keep us pure. And he'll do that sanctification grace through every single sacrament the church has to offer. That's how Jesus laid down his life for his bride and takes care of her and provides for her through the Holy Spirit. No one knows the day or the hour that the bridegroom will come for you. He came for Mary Jo Monday. She was in this class. This was the reading read at her funeral, John 14. And I said, oh, she's got her lesson done. Just like Mary Jo, she prepared in advance. This was at her funeral. We drank the cup of acceptance. He offered it to us. We drank it. The cup that was poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. The spirit and the bride say, come. All are invited to the wedding feast of the Lamb. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we praise you. We thank you for being the way back to the Father, for being the truth and nothing but the truth, and for taking us into eternal life so we can be with the Trinity always and forever. Thank you for not leaving us alone. Thank you for giving us a helper, the Holy Spirit, a paraclete, an advocate, a friend, someone who indwells us with your own love between you and the Father. We're filled with that by his presence in us. What a gift. What a wedding gift. You shower on us. Thank you. Thank you. We praise you, Trinity, and we long to get back in full union, full communion with you. And we say glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. That was part two of the Gospel of John, chapter 14, on Seeking Truth with Sharon Doran. To learn more about Seeking Truth Bible studies, visit SeekingTruth.net. Tune in next time for more Seeking Truth with Sharon Doran.